You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and thanks for joining me, Sharon Noonan, for this week's Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Tonight's show has wine, a chopping masterclass, a good book and organic baby food. A great mix, I hope you agree. If you don't, please let me know what you'd like to hear more or less of by sending me an email to s.noonan at live.ie or tweet me at Queen of Org, short for organisation. So it has been a while since our wine expert, Ron Forrestal, paid a visit to the the best possible taste studios and I'm delighted to announce that it's going to be a regular occurrence and he's going to come in every four weeks religiously. He'll be talking about different wines in lots of different contexts from their country of origin to grape varieties, what goes with what and much more. Tonight he's a few tips for us and has a red and white wine from Argentina. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Ron, you're here, you're going to talk about a red and a white wine tonight, but before you do that, you just want to remind the listeners of a few things to bear in mind whenever they're ordering wine. Yes, um, I want to just maybe give a little... Um, people obviously uh, have their favourites when they're, when they're choosing a bottle of wine, be it in a shop or be it in a restaurant. And I just wanted to expand that slightly for people, maybe to try something that they wouldn't normally try. Uh, and the two wines we're going to, uh, to that we've selected as a, as a wine of the month later are two slightly different ones that you wouldn't normally pick if you're picking a red and a white, probably. But they're becoming very fashionable. So really what I wanted to get to was that there's, there's a few things that are kind of intimidating for people when they see either a full shelf of wine with 140 or 50 wines in it or a wine list in a restaurant, which can be much more intimidating because at least you can see the bottles in a shop, but in a restaurant... Um, you have to pick from what you can read and um, you may not feel comfortable asking the waiter or waitress um, to help. So what I just basically wanted to give a little quick run through was on the wine itself. So to start off, what you probably drink at home now, you probably drink a Sauvignon Blanc or a Pinot Grigio or a Cabernet Sauvignon or a Merlot. And they're all grape varieties, they're kind of grapes, which you, which you know already. Um, the, there's grapes that are quite similar to each other, like Sauvignon Blanc and Chenin Blanc from South Africa are quite similar to each other. Pinot Grigio is kind of unlike anything else. Um, it's Italian grape variety, although it's grown in lots of different countries now. Uh, Chardonnay, which is probably the poor relation of the whites at this stage that's not as drank as much as either the other two, um, is a much more foody wine. But basically, what I'm what I'm trying to say is that if you get there, there's a few things that should happen, particularly in a restaurant when you order a bottle of wine. First of all, you you pick the section that that you're most happy with, be it Chilean, Australian, French, and you may not recognise any of the products that are there. So the best thing is to go for the grape variety, which will be should be on the list, should be on all lists, regardless whether it's French or or, or Italian. So uh, if you like Sauvignon Blanc. Um, the, that should be on the on the list for French product. If not, there's a few products that are Sauvignon Blanc that you may not realise, like Sancerre, um, Hopa Two. They're all Sauvignon Blancs. If you like Chardonnay, Chablis is Chardonnay. Uh, really, I didn't know that. Yeah, 100% Chardonnay. As is Macaluni, all those products in Burgundy that you'd recognise are all 100% Chardonnay. So then uh, don't be afraid to ask questions, of course, and hopefully that the, the, the person serving you will actually know the answer to the question. That's the, the hope anyway. So there's a few things that when, you, when the bottle actually arrives, you order a bottle of Sancerre, which probably costs on a wine list somewhere between 30 and 35 euros a bottle. There's a few things that should happen at this stage when you order it. Um, it needs to be presented to you before it's opened. And that's to, to um, guarantee that you've got what you asked for. Do you not feel that that only happens in a certain type of restaurant, that it has to be a fairly high-end restaurant for them to do that? Well, it should happen everywhere, really. Um, it's, um, it's, it's not even a, a tradition at this stage. It's, it's really it's to cover both people's um, ends, really, both the restaurant to ensure that you actually, you, that is what you order, that you haven't made a mistake, and secondly, that you're happy with it. That's what you, what you actually ordered. Now, they should do that, and most of them tend to do it. Now, a lot of them tend to do it as they're opening it um, in front of you. So it's important just to get it right. Um, so it is. So you look at the label. The label should have the year in it. You mightn't be too uh, too 
um, particular about the year itself. But it is important to make sure that whatever year it says on the wine list is the year that's on the bottle. Because sometimes the the two don't tally. A lot of the time they don't now because a lot of a wine list wouldn't change for from one end of the year to the other, if you know what I mean. It could be in, in place, printed for two years, and the chances are that wine would have changed once, if not twice, in that time. So that's that's important. That That's not quite the end of the world now. It's more important that the actual name is correct on the product. Um, and things even change on that end, that there might be an addition made to the name by the producer in the space of a few months. But anyway, so the second, so they have the year, you have the name, you have the country it's from. And you're happy with it then. The idea is that the bottle of wine never leaves your sight from then on. That's the idea. So the, the, uh, the waiter is to open the bottle as close to you as possible that you can see it. Be with a corkscrew or a screw cap now, which is probably well over half the products at this stage are all in screw caps. And perfectly acceptable. Absolutely. No issue at all. Uh, particularly on whites, and particularly on younger whites, that is in fresh drinking whites. And then it's to taste. Um, and this is to pour a mouthful, not, not a little tiny sip, an actual mouthful into a glass. And you're to try it. And this is a... This is to, for you to feel comfortable that the wine is, is in good shape, as in it's what it's supposed to be, as in it's not oxidised, it's not gone off, it's not caught. Now, it's not that you don't like it. There's a fine line there between that and you got what you ordered, so it's, it's not that you don't like the particular Sauvignon that you got. Uh, it's just that there's anything wrong with it. What if it's not cold enough? You should. It's a real bugbear of mine that that restaurants don't tend to keep their wines cold enough. Uh, now, in their defence, what happens is that if they're particularly busy, their fridges lose temperature because they've been open so much, so they tend to drop down a few degrees or drop up a few degrees in this case. So, uh, just ask for an ice bucket. Uh, and the coolers that the, that restaurants tend to use a lot because they're very um, they're very easy to use. They're they're thermal coolers. You've seen them. The bottle goes into them. Uh, they don't chill anything. They just maintain temperature. So if it's not cold going in, it's not going to get any colder. If anything, it's going to lose temperature. It's really relatively quickly. I have a friend who had an experience where she said it w- she didn't feel it was cold enough. And the next thing, the manager came out and said, Madame, this is the temperature that this wine should be served at. Like, what do you do? If you like it chilled, you like it chilled. Absolutely. And and if he was paying for it, he could have an opinion on what he thought it might be. But if you're paying 20, 30, 40 euros for a bottle of wine, if you want it lukewarm, then that should be their goal in life to get it to you in that, in that way. Like, I, I can't, uh, I, I deal with probably around 50 restaurants. I can't think of any one of them that would do that, that would, that would have that kind of confrontation with anybody. It was just unbelievable. So it would. I've also been in a very high-end restaurant in New York and it wasn't cold enough and the ice bucket was produced. And she said, oh, you know, whenever you get down further, it'll mm. be chilled. And my husband was, I suppose, because it was an expensive restaurant, mm. an expensive bottle of wine was very much of the opinion, this is not good enough. But they didn't care. Yes, yeah, it, it's not at all good enough because I can imagine what you were spending on a bottle of wine in a, in a New York restaurant would be pretty pricey. Um, but see, it, it's it's a mistake they make and and it, it defeats the purpose for themselves, really. I, ha- I have a restaurant that I've dealt with for years in, in Nina um, called the Peppermill, a fantastic restaurant, a really, really nice owner is the chef. Um, uh, Marie Gill has been cooking in Nina for 30 years at this stage, which is a fantastic lady and her husband runs the front of house. And uh, your, your, the accepted uh, temperature for a wine fridge is about six or seven degrees. He has his about three, because his view on it is that the colder the wine is, the more of it you drink. Okay. If it's not cold enough, then people don't drink as much of it. Yes. So he says that if you get, if you get a group of, a couple sit down, a couple of four sit down, and the wine is really cold, they'll have a bottle of wine gone in 10 or 12 minutes when they're sitting at the bar before they sit down. He said, if it's not cold enough, they'll sit looking at it for a half an hour. So you've lost all that time where they could have had something else or a drink or something else. 
So it defeats the person themselves, so it should really set it as cold as you can. Now, there's other products that, like if you're spending a lot of money on a bottle of wine, like on a, a bottle of white or 50 or 60 euros, it's, it, you couldn't drink it that cold because what cold is, it dulls the flavour of the wine. It makes it very nice to drink, but it dulls the flavour of the wine. That's fine for a certain product, but then when you're really paying for something that you really want to taste, it's best not to have it that cold. Mm. It's trying, to get, it's trying to get just the right medium, isn't it? It is, it is. And like most people at home, pop it into a freezer for 10 minutes before they, before they serve it. And that's, that's quite acceptable as long as you remember that you put it in the freezer. Is the fur fine for a bottle of wine that you're spending 10, 8 or 10 euros on or 12 euros on? It's fine. Well, all good advice. And you have some wines now tonight that you want to yes. highlight. Well, I wanted to, now, now we carry about 160 or 70 wines, but I wanted to, to highlight a particular uh, country that, that's making ways at the moment in the Irish wine market, um, which is Argentina, which is, has never caught up to Chile, although Argentina were here first. But Chile just really caught people's imagination and hit the perfect price point and quality mark for Irish. But Argentina is an amazing country. Um, I was lucky enough to go a few years ago um, to Mendoza, and it's it's just it, it's it's uh, it's a very um, unusual country. Uh, they have a huge affiliation with Irish people, really like Ireland. But what I've picked today is is uh, two wines um, from uh, San Juan, which is not Mendoza. It's the other two winemaking regions in Argentina, Mendoza and San Juan. So two from San Juan. These are for, uh, from a winery called uh, Calia, uh, Malbec, which is the traditional Argentinian grape variety. It's a French variety originally, but was taken to Argentina and grows there better than anywhere else in the world at this stage. Uh, it's a, a full-bodied red um, because they eat a lot of meat. Uh, every meal has meat, uh, at least one course of it, if not two courses of it, and beef particularly. So you need something that's big and strong and able to stand up to it. And Malbec has a kind of a rough feel to it, but an amazing fruit flavours. Uh, this, there's a lot of Malbecs out there, some very reasonable ones, um, uh, which I have as well. This one now sits slightly above that, costing around €11 Euros a bottle, but really worth it. It's called a Calia Alta Malbec, which is their second level of their Malbec. And the white uh, from Argentina as well, from the same winery, is a Pinot Grigio, which is a... Yeah, Grows, you know, as Italy's biggest selling white, but it's a grape that grows particularly well as well in, in uh, Argentina, and they've taken to it very well. And it's it's a, a in opposed to the Italian Pinot Grigio, which is kind of a neutral flavour, hasn't an awful lot of background taste to it. The Argentinian one has really has a lot of flavour to it, has a deeper colour. Uh, the sun is is stronger. The alcohol level is slightly higher, um, but has a real kick to it. And is a beautiful product served ice cold. Just by itself with not necessarily anything to eat with it. Perfect for for appetizers, for canopies before you sit down, but served really, really cold. And the red then is perfect for the steak. Perfect for steak. Okay. Absolutely. So those are, just remind us of the two names there before you go. Calia Alta Malbec and Calia Alta Pinot Grigio. And they're both around 11 euros. 11 euros. And if anybody wants to order off you, they can get in touch with you, then go to your website, which is? Uh, www.forestal.ie. Ron, thanks very much. Looking forward to trying them. No problem. Thank you. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Looking forward now to Ron's return in four weeks. And if you have any questions that you'd like me to put to him when he's here, just send them to me by email, s.noonan at live.ie or tweet me at Queen of Org, short for organisation. And I'll be sure to ask him on your behalf. Still to come tonight, Geraldine O'Sullivan enjoys a chopping masterclass with Chef Chad Byrne at the Brehan Hotel in Killarney. And author Sarah Moore Fitzgerald is popping in to tell us about her latest novel, The Apple Tart of Hope. Before all that, we're heading over to the phone and putting a call into a company north of the border to talk to Shauna McCarney Blair of Heavenly Tasty Organics. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Shauna, thanks for coming on to The Best Possible Taste to talk about Heavenly Tasty Organics. You started the business because of personal experience with baby food on the market. Yes, that's correct, Tara, and thank you very much for having me on. Um, 
Yes, I started the business really, um, it was a personal need. Um, I had two children who have serious food allergies and uh, I couldn't really find anything that was suitable for them on the market um, and I wanted something that was similar to what I was doing at home and that I was making everything fresh and everything was organic and had no pesticides or anything that would um, inflict any allergy reactions on them as well. So it was really from seeing that need in the market that I started the business. What food allergies were you experiencing with your kids? Uh, they both have, my two older children have um, serious nut allergies and they also have egg allergies and uh, also dairy. One of, my, one of my children have a dairy intolerance as well. So um, I just left the weekly shopping a bit more difficult, I have to say. Um, there's, you know, a lot of those food products are in a lot of the products that you would buy in the shops. And it's quite difficult when you're feeding babies of that age that, uh, that do have allergies. So. Are they twins or are they quite close together in age? Uh, no, they're, they're close together. Uh, Joe's nine, Cara's eight, and then I have a little, little baby now as well, Elsa. She's just eight months there, so... Congratulations. Back into it again. <laughs> so whenever you had the, the first two, were you working at the time? No, uh, no I was a full-time mum whenever I had Joe and Cara. I stayed at home for the first four years, and really it was after that that I made the, the, the leap into business and the decision to start the business. Um coming from being a full-time mum and starting a business obviously can have its own sort of, uh, you're a bit maybe hesitant in places, but it's a great learning curve and, and I'm really glad I did it. So. so tell us what were the first steps then? You you obviously were making the food at home for your, your two children and you thought, right, I'm going to start making this and selling it. Yes. Well, I did an awful lot of research before I made the decision to, to start the business. So a lot of it just involves really researching, obviously, on the internet, uh, speaking to other parents. And I also, um, I think one of the big turning points in my decision of, of starting the business was um, I have contact with a nutritionist in Belfast, Jane McLenahan, who we, we work very closely with in the business. Um, and I, I met Jane one day and I, I put the, in, the, the idea of the business uh, forward to her and I sort of asked her advice on it and she just at that point said you know you have to do this this is just going to be a, a great business you have to do it there's nothing out there like this so I think to, to hear that from someone else and um, get the positivity from Jane at that time it really was a, a turning point in my decision to do the business and, and, and go for it really. And what were the challenges that you faced in terms of paperwork and red tape? Um, I think um, probably at the start, obviously, in any business, it's, it's finances are, are the biggest stumbling block for anyone, really. Um, I think really after that, it was, I suppose at the time we, we started the business, it was, the products were all frozen. So we were the only business doing frozen baby food in the whole island of Ireland at the time. And I think a lot of the, the local environmental health authorities and different people were a bit anxious, maybe, about, you know, it's just, it's not produced in the same way as jarred baby food and, and all that sort of stuff so they had to do a lot of homework themselves and to um, educate themselves about the different processes that we were using which were just basically the same as what mums were doing at home we were just cooking it and freezing it and I suppose a lot of the research that we did was to prove that that, that was a safe way of doing that and, and that the babies would not come into any uh, sort of problems from using our product so that um, in itself was a, a big learning curve as well because I, I learned an awful lot from doing that um, and it just showed that there was a way of doing it that it was equally as safe as, as using it, maybe manufacturing a jarred product. So, did you have to find a facility to start making it, or did you start from home initially? Uh, no, I, well, I never made it uh, from home, and it was something that I was very, very conscious about, um, and a decision that I made very early on. Uh, I worked very closely with Lottery College in Cookstown here in County Tyrone and um, got a lot of advice from them as well in terms of food safety and, and, and a lot of training up there as well. Um, so they have a facility there that um, you can hire out uh, units from uh, for small businesses that are starting into the food industry. And they're basically like small factories where you, um, you hire it out and you have the facilities there to produce your product of a very, very high standard. So that's where we started initially. Uh, so we made everything by hand there and... Um, that was a big, big point for the business and then that we took that unit on and it instantly gave us a bit of credibility as well and that we were using the facility with Lottery College. Well, tell us about the actual products. There's a few different flavours there. Yes, that's right. Um, 
Well, our products now are all chilled at this point in time. So we've made a few pivots in the last few years in terms of product development. Um, they're all chilled, so you'll find us in the chilled aisle in the supermarkets. Um, the stage one products are suitable for babies from the early stages of weaning, so from four to six months onwards. And obviously, the, the WHO guidelines recommend weaning from uh, six months, as close to six months as possible onwards. But um, So we have apple and pear puree, and that's our stage one products. Um, stage two is around from seven months onwards, and we have tomato and pasta and lentil and vegetable soup. And then our stage three products, which are suitable from nine months onwards, are uh, minced beef and potatoes and spaghetti bolognese. So they all leave a nice messy mark on the they bib. Do. <laughs> they, do. they do. And I have to say the, um, the minced beef, um, the spaghetti bolognese and the lentil and vegetable soup all won awards in the Blast Heron Awards last year. So they, they, were, they won those awards on flavour alone. So they are very, very tasty. And you were saying there about the different age groups and that they, they can start taking them from. Yes. And you're going by guidelines that you mentioned. Yes, yes. Uh, the WHO guidelines, so the World Health Organization, they recommend weaning um, doesn't really begin until as close to six months as possible. Um, now, really, it's, it's up to the mum themselves when they start that. Um, so the, the guidelines are just out there. They recommend exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months. Um, and obviously, there are a lot of women who either do or do not choose to do that for various different reasons. Um, so it'll be either your breast milk or your formula milk up until as close to six months as possible. Um, and then start on to the solid foods such as our apple and pear puree. Now let's talk about the ingredients that you use because your company is Heavenly Tasty Organics. That's right. So are all your ingredients organic? They are. Our ingredients are all 100% organic and certified at 100% organic as well. Um, we are certified by the Soil Association, um, who are based in the UK. They have very, very stringent um, guidelines and uh, inspections, which we undergo on a yearly basis. So, uh, so all our products that, um, and all our ingredients and suppliers are all certified 100% organic. And where do you source the ingredients from? Uh, well, most of our ingredients are sourced from the UK, um, so they're... Uh, close as possible that we can source them from um, to get a, a good supply as well as most of our suppliers um, are based over there um, there are some other products maybe that do come from further afield but very very rarely we try to source um, as locally as possible um, to supply the product so. and you mentioned earlier on that you've changed now the, the products are no longer frozen they're stored in the fridge and uh, that hasn't affected you exporting them no, it hasn't at all, thank goodness. Um, it actually has helped <laughs> for exporting and for some reason. Um, I think um, we, we've just started to export out into sort of uh, Dubai and um, the UAE area. So we have had an awful lot of interest from supermarkets out there and uh, we have some products actually on their way out there at the moment. So it's, it's very, very encouraging um, to see that they have this interest in our chilled products um, because a lot of the bigger baby food brands are still doing ambient products, so hopefully we'll make our mark in the market. And how does somebody go from selling within Northern Ireland, the UK, Ireland, to start exporting to Dubai? Um, Did well, it happen for, by accident or yeah. was it something that was quite strategic? Um, well, for us, I suppose, it, it was something that we never dreamt that we would be doing, in all honesty, um, when we started out. Uh, we initially just thought of Ireland and then the UK and then possibly maybe dip our toe into Europe. But um, it wasn't really a strategic decision early on. But um, we started to see an awful lot of interest. Uh, we did the Sial show in Paris two years ago. And uh, it's a huge uh, food exhibition. So it's a big trade exhibition. And we received an awful lot of interest there for the Dubai and UAE area. So it was something that sort of we thought about and, and started thinking, you know, there is uh, a lot of expats out there who can use our product. And uh, we did do some more investigation and we were very lucky to be uh, paired up with a, a really good distributor who can bring our products out there. So, so the products, are they're gluten-free, sugar-free, salt-free. There's no eggs, no dairy, and they're in the chilled section. And you've recently got listed in Tesco's. 
That's correct, yes. Um, we're very, very, very excited about our launch into Tesco Ireland and Tesco Northern Ireland. Um, it's something that we um, value very, very much in terms of working in our own country and, and within Ireland and Northern Ireland. It's, um, it's quite a lot of mums would do their weekly shop there and they do their home delivery from there. So for us, it works very, very well. Uh, we're delighted that they're supporting local business uh, in terms of bringing our products on. It's such a different product that ours is, so uh, we're absolutely thrilled to bits about it. So, so Shauna, the website is heavenlytastyorganics.com, so people can log on there and you'll have a full list of all the Tesco's and other supermarkets that you're available in. Yes, correct, and uh, also on our Facebook page as well and Twitter, there's also some more information on there if people want to maybe log on and, and like our page and they can keep up to date with everything that we, we have going on. Shauna McCarney-Blair of, T- of Heavenly Tasty Organics, thanks for talking to me this evening and continued success. Thank you so much, Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. You're welcome back to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102FM. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break I was talking to Shauna McCarney-Blair of Heavenly Tasty Organics about her award-winning baby food and Ron Forrestal was here in studio with some great wine advice. If you're just tuning into the show you can catch up with us later in the week when we upload it to our podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash food and drink show. Still to look forward to tonight is an interview with author Sarah Moore Fitzgerald about her latest novel The Apple Tart of Hope and we have the events diary which includes details of some events taking taking place around the country this weekend. Next though it's the final slot by Geraldine O'Sullivan who met up with chef Chad Byrne in the Brehan Hotel in Killarney for a chopping masterclass. Not sure why she felt she needed this after her interview with the inventor of Mr Chop on April the 1st earlier this year. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleunter. An important part of every chef's kit is their collection of knives. Today, Chad Byrne, head chef in the Brennan and Killarney, is going to give us some tips on knives for the kitchen. Welcome, Chad. Oh, thanks very much. So we have your knife case here in front of us. Uh, can you describe the various knives that you have in it? I can, of course. Well, there's, there's quite a few different knives that I'd always use. Um, for instance, this chopping knife here, which is about a 12 centimeter blade, about uh, 300, 300 grams in, in weight. And that's what I'd use for general practice, like all onions, herbs, whatever, whatever, whatever I'm chopping in the kitchen. Um, then I'd have a meat knife here, which is, again, the same weight, about 300 grams, about 11 inch blade. It's, it's only sharpened on one side, so the meat doesn't stick to the knife, it just glides off the, it glides off the knife. And that's uh, for big cuts of meat, like, uh, say, sirloin or billet of pork neck or whatever it is that we use. But it's, uh, it's a nice, easy knife to use. It's a butcher's knife as well. But that it, one has a bit of a curve at the end of it. It is, and again, we only sharpen that on one side. Almost like a Japanese knife, what they use for sushi, they only sharpen their knives on one side as well. From there, I'd have a fish knife, which is uh, flexible, about a 9 centimeter blade on that, uh, about 150 grams, and it's quite flexible. So when I'm filleting fish, I can just take off the, the fillet quite easily. You'd see the way it bends on the chopping board there quite easily? Yeah. So it's easy enough for that. Um, an oyster knife, obviously, just for shucking oysters. Easy enough to do. Get into the creek of the oyster and click her open, and she's done. There's a nice base here for protection, so I'm not going to stab myself basically with an oyster shell. Because it's happened before, and trust me, when it happens, it's it's quite bad. But not they're, they're the basic knives that are used use in the kitchen. Other than that, it would be a, a carver. A carver carve knife is obviously used for carving meat and obviously bread you'd never use a chopping knife or a meat knife or anything to carve bread because it'll just blunt your knife with it with the dough so the carving knife has the serrated edges which is different to these knives which are yeah exactly but but again i'd use two different types of carving knives i'd use a curved carving knife for meat and stuff like that it it just saws through the meat either whereas a straight knife for bread and stuff like that just so you're going to get a clean cut on the base of the bread okay so for people cooking at home i suppose they might want to invest in a huge range of knives what would be the the main maybe three knives that they should get honestly if if you're not going to invest in a lot i'd I'd go to an asian store 
I have a, I have a meat cleaver here. I'll show you the meat cleaver there. I'm getting a bit worried now. He looks very happy about this. So, well, it's it, it's 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 quite old now, but uh, I have that for about 17 years, and the blade's still as sharp as when I got it. It's so, just because it's sharpening every day. But it's if you if you look after if you if you if you buy a decent knife for 10, 15 euro for a home, which is sharpen it every day, it's perfect as long as the knife is sharp and you have a good file. Sure. Actually, that's the most important knife in my bag, the sharpener. We don't have a sharpener, the knives aren't sharp, and then they're useless. If I was sharpening now and I was doing it the wrong way, could I actually blunt in the knife? Um, not really, but you could stab yourself. Like, <laughs> but uh, as long as you go from, from the base of the knife all the way to the tip at a 45 degree angle, it doesn't matter if it's on the back of a plate, a ceramic plate, or on your file, just 45 degree angle and back towards you. But there's a nice guard on, on the file there as well, so as I say, as long as there's a guard on it and you have a file, all knives are all knives will stay sharp like so. Okay. But from the base to the tip, because a lot of chefs will have knives where you'll see they're sharpening their knife from the middle and there's sort of a groove will happen and it's not gonna chop it's not gonna chop uh, it's not gonna chop cleanly through to everything. So it's it's always from the base right to the tip, 45 and a nice make sure it's hard so you can actually hear it. Yeah, I, I, I just, back it, just backing away there. And in terms of sharpening the knives, how often should we do that? After every job. After every job. Sounds like it, 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 work. It, it Okay, I'm chopping three or four onions here. I have my file, boom, 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 boom. It's done. Literally three seconds and I can go on to the next job. Once the knives are sharp, once, once they lose that edge, there's no point. Really? Yeah, that's interesting because I would have thought it was, you know, I don't know, every few weeks or every few months no, or something. after every job, after every job. Yeah, so maybe for people at home, after their, once a day or uh, after well, their dinner, uh, that might yeah, be. Yeah, yeah I, could, I couldn't imagine my mother doing that nearly every day either. Um, so in terms of brands then, when we're shopping for knives, what brands are good for knives? I'd say Warstoff or Victorinox would, would be the typical chef brand. It's not, they're not too expensive. Like, you, you, obviously you can get knives like Global Knives, which are crazy expensive, but... I think that's more of a chef fashion statement than anything like because you go through knives so quick in the kitchen if you're using a knife all the time there's no point in spending a grand's worth on knives every year so a, a good set is a, a set of Victorinox knives and you can get them you, geez, you can even get them in Amazon or Nesbitt's.ie it's a lot cheaper than buying in, in a shop like other than that you can go you can go to Brown Thomas's and get a Victorinox a Victorinox knife in there for 60 quid where online you can get it for 20 just because it's in a different packaging like so okay so it might be worth kind of looking online if yeah yeah 100 percent. any tips for us then when using knives have you noticed people make mistakes with just using the, the right knife for the right job but also when when you're holding the knife make sure whatever way you feel the knife like i'm not going to say that's the exact way to hold the knife but make sure you have a firm grip and whatever it is that you're chopping, you're holding it firm with your other hand. Like if I have the knife with my right hand, the veg is being held with my left hand or herbs, whatever it is. You know, I have my knuckles down flat to the knife, almost vertical hitting against the knife so my, my fingers aren't out. So I'm not going to get a nick on them. So that way I can chop anything and I'm not going to get cooked. Yeah. So your fingers should be slightly bent, so it's really, as you say, it's the knuckle that's kind of facing the knife. Yeah, exactly, exactly, 100 percent like, like a ruler, so to speak. It's just holding the knife in place, so you can you, you, you can go in motion. Yeah, and I'm sure it's practice as well. The more you, the more, ah, chop, yeah, the more Jesus, chopping you Jesus, do, the yeah, faster you yeah. get. But 100 percent like a, a, there's a young Francois. He's a student from France that's come over for the summer with us. When he started, you know, I'd say to him, whatever it is you're doing, just take your time and do it. Speed will come. And now, Jesus, there's no stopping. He's he's very very good, like you know. Very good. So get the but it's a, but it's a, but it's yeah ex exactly. Take your time. Make sure it's safe, and you know it will come eventually. And it, it's coming into autumn time now. So what seasonal foods should we be using in our cooking at this time of year now? Uh, wild hare, kale, sprouts are coming in, which which are beautiful. A lot of pomegranates. Um, razor clams are good at the moment. Uh, cockles are good at the moment. Um, like the, the, the list goes on Art, artichokes quail now as well well quail quails are usually farm now but there's uh, wild, wild quail from Premier that we're getting it's a fantastic dart there in season and I suppose obviously venison is coming into its own now in the next in the next month or so so yeah there's, there's a lot happening out there lots of tasty treats oh indeed 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 but uh, to, to, to be fair now I'd be more of a summer man or a spring man myself like I do like game but I find it very very harsh whereas I like more cleaner refined food great thanks very much Chad so many thanks to Chad Byrne head chef at the Breton Killarney for giving us some tips on kitchen knives at home
Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Thanks again to Chef Chad Byrne from the Brehan Hotel in Killarney for sharing those useful chopping tips and advice. Time to settle down with a good book now. And tonight it's actually a children's book that I was sent a few months back. It's called The Apple Tart of Hope and author Sarah Moore Fitzgerald is here to tell me all about it. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleunte. Sarah, tell us about The Apple Tart of Hope. Sure. Well, it's a young adult novel and it's about a friendship between uh, Oscar and Meg, who are both teenagers. Um, and I think it's a very interesting time in people's lives. You know, it's they're, they're not children anymore and they're not adults yet. It's a very fragile, important, dramatic time in people's lives. And I'm fascinated by the kinds of um, stories that... Uh, teenage life kind of afford, you know, and I've always been fascinated by writing stories anyway. So Oscar and Meg are uh, very, very close friends and between a whole range of different situations and events and that friendship starts to fall apart. And uh, it's in the falling apart of the friendship that the story, I think, lies. And Oscar, who is one of the protagonists in the book, is the best baker in the world. What inspired you to give him that culinary skill? Well, yes. I mean, one of the most magical things about Oscar is that he makes the most delicious apple tarts known to mankind and that he claims quite confidently that if you take one, no matter how bad your life is, no matter how depressed you are or no matter how awful things have become, if you take one bite of one of his gorgeous apple tarts, suddenly the world starts to look brighter again. And I think that's a really, I mean, I was captivated by the concept of uh, baking something that actually makes people better, that has, you know, uh, apple tarts with healing qualities. Um, And I guess where I got the inspiration from that was from my grandmother, who was a wonderful baker. And from the time I was very small, she would talk about um, the alchemy of uh, of baking, of turning really simple ingredients like flour and butter and sugar into beautiful things. And um, and so, yeah, I think I was very much inspired by the notion that home cooked, carefully baked um, apple tarts made with love can conquer the world. And do you have the recipe for that apple tart? Because <laughs> yes, I'm do. sure that's what everybody's wondering at <laughs> home. Do. Well, actually, in the book, there is a description of how you make it. So it's not so, you know, um, Oscar talks about the ingredients you need. You have to use Bramley apples and you have to use brown sugar, not white. And the sugar has to be a certain consistency. It has to sort of tumble over itself in order. Uh, it can be that sort of very moist um, uh, golden sugar. Uh, that uh, that isn't you don't get in the kind of those big white processed uh, bags. Um, he I, he also uh, you know you have to, your hands have to be a certain uh, temperature because making pastry if pastry gets too hot and cloy it doesn't work properly. So uh, you have to keep your butter nice and cool and you have to also get into a good meditative state of mind. You can't, nobody's ever made apple tart in a hurry. You always have to slow down and you have to make uh, the pastry very slowly um, and deliberately and with great concentration. Gosh, I'm in a trance here just listening to you (laughs) deliver that description. So it sounds like you yourself are a very skilled apple tart baker. Well, I'm not sure about skilled. I'm very enthusiastic and I'm constantly trying to make apple tarts and I'm constantly um, changing the ingredients, putting in cinnamon and um, ground clove or um, checking for the consistency or even... um, you know, looking at how different kinds of apples give rise to different results. So I do love to experiment. Um, I do love to make apple tarts, but I particularly love making them since I start, since I wrote this book, because um, I wasn't a particularly good apple tart maker before writing the book, but it inspired me to um, to try harder. And I think they're a little bit better now than they used to be. And if you had the choice between apple tart or a chocolate cake or a meringue pie whenever you're out somewhere, would apple tart be your your preference? Yeah, with a big dollop of cream. I'm afraid it's my big weakness. (laughs) Well, this is your second book. Yes. And 
We always ask authors, what's your writing routine? Do you write at night, in the morning? Because you obviously are a very busy individual because you're a professor and associate vice president at the University of yeah. Limerick in Ireland. I'd imagine that takes up a lot of time. Yeah, well, I do. You're right. I have a really, really busy job, which I absolutely love. And it occupies all my, you know, daytime existence. And then I have three kids at home. So I'm very busy at home when I get home. So I'm a I, I'm a weekend novelist and a holiday novelist. So I don't I've I don't think I've ever written during daylight hours. I'm almost like a vampire writer because it it seems to have to be dark when I'm writing. Um, but I've loved writing from the time I was about five, and or I think from the time that I could put pen to paper. Actually, I've always written stories. I used to get in trouble in school for writing stories when I should have been doing my maths, um, or kind of. Um, uh, perhaps less uh, creative subjects. Um, so I've always loved to write fiction and I've always tried to make room for it in my life. But it's late at night. It's very early um, on the weekend mornings when the kids are still in bed and when I have a little bit of time to myself. And then I usually try to elbow out some time for writing when I'm on holidays. And how does it affect your diet then? If you Do you get totally engrossed in it? Is it cups of coffee one yeah. after another? I, yeah, I think when I'm in the midst of writing a novel, I'm a bit like I was as a student. I don't really take care of myself. I mean, I'd love to tell you that I had, you know, a bunch of rice cakes and bananas and Brazil nuts and water at my desk. But I'm afraid I kind of go for the carbs and um, or lots of coffee, lots of chocolate few slices of apple tart. <laughs> sounds good. Doesn't yeah. sound too bad to me. Sounds good. And children's book, is that going to be your thing moving on into the future? Or will yeah. you I mean I the older you know it's group? funny that you say that I um I mean I always see myself writing. I always see myself making time for writing. But there's something, as I said, about um that really interesting time between childhood and being a grown up that I think is full of magic and I imagine that if I do write more books I'll probably still target that age group for a while. Although I'm not that's not to say that I don't have a grown up novel in me, but um the other thing that's lovely about the books is that they're nice and short and given that I don't have a huge amount of time for writing, it's nice to write short books. <laughs> and did you find it challenging getting a publisher and getting an agent? Yeah, it, look, I mean, like everybody has their story. If you're if you're trying to be a published novelist, it can take a very long time. But what I always say to people, anybody who's thinking about writing, is that the world makes you feel it's completely impossible. Everybody has a story about how there's thousands and thousands of, you know, uh, manuscripts in people's slush piles and nobody ever gets to read it. And it's a miracle if anybody finds uh, your work. And I just think you have to be persistent. If you have a good story in you, then you've got to keep on believing in yourself and you have to work hard enough to justify that story. And the chances are you'll find someone who'll want to read it. And did you have to send your novels out to many people before that somebody bit at it? Um, my husband, uh, I, I wrote a lot um kind of privately. I didn't quite know whether I was ever going to try to get published but my husband um, persuaded me to send the first three chapters to a few agents in London and um, I got s several immediate rejections but uh, this wonderful woman called Jo Unwin who had just started as a an agent for children and young adult books in London uh, said that she loved the first three chapters and that she wanted to see the rest of the book. And uh, when I sent it in to her, she said it needed a tiny bit, it needed a good bit of work. Uh, but uh, she said it wasn't a huge amount of work, but it turned out to be quite a lot of work. Um, and then she found a publisher, Orion Children's Books. So I, it was rocky, it was all as it always is. And there were several rejections um, in the process. But once you find a champion like the agent that I have, uh, I think it gets an awful lot easier. And that's a UK agent? Yeah, it? Okay. yeah. Now, your husband said he, you said he persuaded you to, to send it in. Do you let him read yes. what you've written? Yes, I, I sometimes have to beg him to read it <laughs> because he's kind of sick of listening about the story. I actually often pitch the story to my kids and to... Um, to Jerry, my husband, to ask them kind of, what does that sound like? Or I, I'll pitch the, when I was um, making up apple tart, trying to think through the story, I told them about the characters and they gave me a lot of guidance about that. So I do a lot of pitching and then I try to get them to read um, chapters. 
my daughter is who's my 15 year old daughter Stephanie is uh, is a big reader of my stuff and so she's been a really good critic and she told me several times like mum that chapter is totally boring I don't know what it's doing there you have to cut it and uh, she was great in terms of helping me to keep my story interesting and keep the plot moving along So you would very much take her advice on board Oh absolutely yeah the name of the book then, The Apple Tart of Hope, how did you come up with that? Did that come naturally or was there a bit of work involved to come up with that? Yeah, I always find it really hard to come up with the title. It's because, I mean, and the publishers will tell you that it's one of the most important decisions that you'll make about a book because a title is, you know, a friend of mine recently said to me, you have to uh, choose a title that someone who comes into a bookshop will want to say. Um, and so thinking about something lyrical or interesting or quirky is actually quite important. So I think I had about five titles for um, The Apple Tart of Hope. And when I gave that one to my children, I think it was the one they liked best. So I thought I'd go with it. But one of the alternative titles was Recipes of the Dead which uh, was much more, bit more grim urban, and awful. Yeah. And I don't think yeah. anyone would have bought it or been interested in reading a book called that. So it is important to the title, I think. And do you think there's a cookbook in you? Um, I Yeah, I'd love to write a cookbook. I'm not sure I'm really expert enough to justify being the author of a cookbook, but I love the idea of writing one for sure. Maybe for kids as well. I think um, kids and cooking... It's really important. Or even a cookbook with all those different apple tart varieties that you were talking about earlier on. That's a fantastic idea, Sharon. I might give that a bit more thought. Let (laughs) me know if you go ahead with that. In the meantime, thanks so much for bringing a copy of the Apple Tart of Hope into us. And we have the Shanahan family just outside Newcastle West all lined up to read that. That's Rachel, Gemma and Connor, And they're going to come in in a few weeks time and review it. So we'll let you know whenever they're coming. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to hearing their verdict. Sarah, thanks so much. Thanks a million. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. You're welcome back now to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Just before the break, I was talking to author Sarah Moore Fitzgerald about her latest novel, The Apple Tart of Hope. I've passed my copy on to the Shanahan family in Barna, just outside Newcastle West, and look forward to hearing what Rachel Shanahan thinks about it in a couple of weeks. It's time for the diary now and I have a couple of events to tell you about. If you enjoyed the fabulous Dua Summer Festival and barbecue last weekend and fancy a bit more barbecuing, you can head to Dublin this weekend for the Big Grill Festival. I spoke to Andy Noonan earlier this evening and he told me all about it. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. So Andy, tell us what people can expect at the Big Grill Festival this weekend. Yeah, um, it's uh, people can expect food cooked uh, using live fire and smoke. Uh, the best in Irish international and craft beer. Uh, the Grillster Academy, which is a really comprehensive uh, demo area manned by uh, John Relahan, who is uh, from not too far away from me down there. He's in from uh, originally from Dua and Kerry. He's uh, Jamie Oliver's uh, senior sous chef in Barbaco, which is regarded as one of the best barbecue restaurants in the world. He's actually uh, from Dua in County Kerry Dua, and we Dua, were all we were all down there last weekend watching him cook up a storm. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, you, you were all down last weekend. Um, so he's coming up this weekend for, for us. Um, really, really good guy and uh, doing really good things with barbecue. So he's kind of one of the stars of our show. Um, we also have a barbecue competition as well. Um, it's a, it's an audience like participated by the, uh, the audience called Ready Steady Q, um, and we have plans for a big sort of southern style and international style uh, barbecue competition coming up as well. Not for this event, but for next year. Um, and we also have a, a little grillers kids area as well. Uh, there's some nice little surprises as well around the site, so uh, which we won't be saying too much about until the event. So there's activities for all the family, so it, yeah, it's very exactly. children friendly. It is very children friendly. I mean, Friday night is what we're, is, is an after work party, and we've sold loads of corporate tickets for that, and there's still some available. Um, but uh, Saturday's more the, I suppose, um, it's kind of the, the one of the busier days, um, and that's uh, I suppose that's family orientated as well. 
Um, but Sunday is the sort of big family day. We've had a huge number of family tickets for Sunday and we've a bit of extra stuff on the Sunday for, for the kids as well. So uh, we expect Sunday to be the really big family day, but uh, Saturday and Sunday are really family friendly. Talk to me about the venue. Where is it all taking place? Yeah, Herbert Park, which is um, which is which is a really big thing, I suppose uh, for for anyone that knows it. There's there's never really been anything on in Herbert Park. Um, the last time there was sort of a, a large public fair was, I suppose, before it was a, a public park back in 1907. I think called the World Fair, um, and uh, you know it's the first time there's ever been sort of a, 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 a you know a festival here really. Um, so we're, we're suppose we're honoured to take it in one sense, but it's also a big thing for the area. It's a beautiful area. It's a beautiful park. Um, and it's just it's nice to see uh, a beautiful space being used, you know, in the city centre. Oh, and that's Dublin city centre. It's Dublin city centre. It's in Ballsbridge. It's right across the road from uh, where Leinster play. Um, and I suppose, I suppose it's in between. It's in between the RDS and the Aviva. More, more closer to the RDS, but it's uh, it's smack bang in the middle of, of uh, Ballsbridge. It's only a, a 10, 15 minute walk to Leeson Street. So uh, there's a dart across the road, and there's a Lewis fifteen minutes up the road in Ranella. So very well connected and if people want to buy tickets how much are they and where can they get them from yeah uh, at the moment we're doing uh, the tickets are available on eventbrite.ie um, and you'll see it on the home page there at eventbrite.ie and they start at currently now we have uh, Friday tickets are 10 euros Saturday and Sunday are 15 euro each um, but we have a really good group deal uh, that's that sold out on the Saturday but we still have it on the Sunday at 6 for 40 um, so it's a really, really good deal. And uh, as I said, we sold out on a Saturday. So we expect the Sunday one to sell out by the end of the week as well. Um, and we also have family tickets. Uh, it's €30 Euros for two adults. Uh, and two 12 to, se- 12 to 17-year-olds go for free on that ticket. And all under 12s go free. And what do they get for the, the ticket price? Yeah, you get uh, admission, uh, access to the demo area, the kids area. Uh, the craft beer bars, uh, all the featured uh, barbecue vendors and restaurants um, and any other features. Basically, there's, there's no extra charge for, for any of the activities inside. Um, only, the only thing you pay for inside is food and drink, uh, which is really reasonably priced. Uh, it's uh, pints are 2 and for a glass and €5 Euro for a pint. And uh, food starts from about €4 Euros up to about €10, €11. Euros. So really reasonable and they're good, big, decent portions, not really small tasting sort of portions. So... Uh, you won't go hungry. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. That was Andy Noonan from the Big Grill Festival and a couple of other events I wanted to mention was Mark Doe from Just Cooking and Kerry has an off to college course on Monday the 18th of August, €25 per head. That might be an interesting one for anybody that has a child that's, that's heading away in September that they feel needs a bit of help in the kitchen and I'll be talking to Mark about that in more detail soon you can also check out discoverireland.ie forward slash food for further info on the events highlighted by Fulcher Ireland's Helen McDeed at the start of the month so we're out of time thanks to everyone who took part in the programme tonight regular listeners know that the podcast is on soundcloud.com forward slash food and drink show keep in touch by emailing me or tweeting me details coming up in a minute until next week when we'll have a report from Kerry thanks to Karen Coakley of Kenmare Foodies and Sally McKenna shares some of her vast seaweed knowledge with me enjoy your week and bon appetit Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!